Welcome to the Mondo Neon Show. Argon, Neon, Helium, Xenon, Krypton. Transform and roll out. Max at Mono Neon. I'm with DJ Scotto, uh, our guest for today. Uh, really an incredible person, uh, personality, but also influencer on the kind of music level as well as lighting. I think there's a lot of generally kind of great ideas that um, he's introduced and, and just his, his whole work is, is uh, unique. Um, and I'm really happy to share it with everybody on the show. Thanks for coming on. My pleasure. How's it going? It's good. Um, you know, just incredible amount of information that you know, is online about, um, you know, music and, and whatnot, but sort of undisclosed to a lot of people um, is that there was a whole movement kind of early on with rave culture and electronic music. And it's sort of difficult now to understand what that must have been like, you know, you kind of go to your record store and have to rifle through what it is that you think is electronic, but now people associate it just commonly with everyday types of music, like pop music and stuff like that. But um, what you did with kind of just the party culture. Um, you had established sort of the early days of rave culture in New York. What, you know, and, and also just doing a lot of lighting work, uh, incredible enough as all this is, but what was it like kind of being in those early stages? Was it difficult to host parties? I mean, where did that kind of all begin? Because I think a lot of people that make creative things um, that listen to the show uh, would really appreciate kind of hearing what that's like to kind of be a part of something like that, or at least establish um, a culture or a movement. How does that begin? Um, I mean, you know, uh, I, I sort of got into lighting as I was in high school. I was kind of an art major, really into the um, creative aspects. And my art teacher took me to the stage. Uh, they needed help building the school set. And we had a, um Art Deco uh, old, you know, school and it was a really, you know, had a, the theater had a really a great environment and just, you know, enjoyed building the sets and props and really kind of got into lighting through that as well as being a typical suburban teenager and sneaking out and going down to Baltimore and, and getting in wherever I could. And um, sometimes that would be helping bands carry gear in or whatever. But I really focused in on lighting right away. I bought a system when I was still in high school. It was one of the first little lighting computers. And um, I we had a really good culture in Baltimore that um, NDC, you know, with underground types of events and people doing things properly. And this was late 80s. So, you know, when you pull back, I moved to New York right after high school and I got in there, you know, Andy Warhol had died recently. The AIDS epidemic had, you know, terrorized um, that world, especially. And, you know, Studio 54 was closed. The Paradise Garage was closed. And for anybody that doesn't know any of that, that's a little older New York nightlife history. Obviously, the disco era of Studio 54 would be the most prevalently known and they use neon and you know part of the the appeal to nightlife isn't just that you're dancing around hot girls or you know celebrities or this or that it, or or even the music but you're there the whole thing is 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 an escapism uh element and the and the lighting 
and decor and every the, the environment that you are in, you know, it that's part of it. You have you you don't want to feel like you're in a cafeteria dancing at a school dance where you know you you, you know sit there and eat lunch every day. Right. And you, your brain is distracted from that escapism purest moment. So people who have come to New York in various stages or years or cultures or music trends or fat whatever they 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 you can understand that obviously um they caught on and there's clubs everywhere uh, you know grace jones had to start club in dallas whatever but neon played a big part of a light man and a light show for the dj and to get dive into it a little further obviously um you know i i came into New York in an era where technology was changing everything. So now we have a whole, whole different, you know, computerized design, sound systems, light shows, LEDs, technology, um, you know, so many things. But at that moment in the late 80s into early 90s, that's where all of this new technology was coming in. So like, for instance, the Palladium, which was Steve Rebell's club after Studio 54, um, that's also where they filmed Club MTV, and it was the first place to have very lights, um, which were based out of Dallas, and they were the, the, the first, you know, big moving head, changing colors, patterns, light patterns, you know, laser-looking like things. And this was the this, so when I came to New York, that's the first place I applied for a job because I wanted to work in this big club I saw on Club MTV, and. So, but at the same at the same time, you know, I was DJing and throwing parties in part because I could do light shows. You know, I could budget it in, and and instead of making more money, I can I can create with these new computerized lights and lasers and have some fun as an artist and and hopefully you know land some bigger accounts. So, you know, hard work always pays off. You have to be dedicated to whatever craft you're doing and. I was really blessed that a lot of people in New York, you know, took me on as, uh, you know, I had a lot of great mentors and. Um, uh, also, too, is just like the, you know, the kind of like you mentioned the party vibe there. Yeah. I think people were sort of discovering what that new set of sense of freedom meant, you know, like you said, coming out of all the dark era of AIDS and, and whatnot, you know, the huge party club kind of culture was. A, a bit of abandonment. I think people did really look to these places for additional, like we said, we kind of forget now how important the internet is, but at the time sort of uh, it's unique to go back and look at how messages spread. And like with the flyers that went out and all the energy and creativity, I talk about this a lot on the show is just sort of following with your gut and making decisions based on your artistic ambitions and not necessarily relying on everyone else, but if it isn't there kind of making up your own storyline and, um, things like NASA, like with the only kind of like uh, with kind of your your party, your Friday night party at Shelter. I just right. think of like the after hours movement and the dance culture, especially in Tribeca and areas where they're primarily known for kind of higher end now. But, um, you know, I think that's what's unique is that even without the computers involved, there was still a lot of hand to hand com combat, meaning you had to go out there. You did have to hand out things. You had to let people know. I mean, yeah, I, you know, that's a whole you know, sub conversation for sure. Um, getting the word out and having the right people in all the right places, whether they're doing lighting or, or, um, you know, DJing or the door person or, you know, all the staff 
uh, you know, somebody handing you a flyer at three in the morning when you're drunk coming out of a club. And that's, that's the way we had to promote back then. So the flyers had to have eye-catching graphics on a budget, you know, a lot of Kinko's flyers or one, two color jobs. And now you have, you know, the internet. So promoting parties is, and creating that buzz is, it's still, it's still the same FOMO, you know, but you gotta, it's just different with the internet. And, um, but you know, but there are so many aspects to having a success. And you mentioned earlier, my rave club in New York called NASA, which stood for nocturnal audio sensory awakening. And we had, um, no alcohol, no liquor license. We were part of the shelter club, uh, which we took Friday night, Saturday night was there, you know, post paradise garage, you know, gay, black, soulful house, deep house, um, R and B music. And we were presenting a newer sound, uh, techno and, and, and breakbeat and drum and bass and jungle and happy hardcore and trance and all of the styles. And we, we formatted, the night with multiple DJs, which was really the first to do that in Manhattan. Um, you know, most of the clubs would just have one DJ play from opening to close. And so I had to, I had to, I had to program the music in a way and market and promote the event in a way that ended up being three or four times more work because we had to promote, we promoted to high school kids in, the tri-state area and we promoted to the college kids and the nightclub regulars and the after hours crowd so that we had a constant turnover um you know because it was hard to keep people in there um without a liquor license and so you know that that ran from 92 to 93 and it you know it was basically considered the studio 54 version of edm in new york like it, it kind of, you know we got a lot of press it was a lot of great timing and it led to us producing the first two u.s and north american rave techno tours um so that was in um the first one was called rave new world in um early 93 and we did 26 cities with moby the prodigy and richie houghton and dan bell as cybersonic um and, and those are incredible. You even have online, you have footage of this. It's so unique to see at a time, even without everybody without their phone out. And we kind of talk about that, think of it as a good time. I think now it's it's excellent because people <laughs> can promote and do whatever they can. But I but, mean, that was like I said, it was crazy because it was so, no, you're so used to having your phone and being able to take a selfie and then see it right away. You know, we're still talking about 92, 93 when. You know, high eight camcorders were like a thousand dollars, and the tapes were twenty or twenty five dollars a pop. And um, right, I mean that's crazy when you think it. Like, so I, sh I shot the whole <laughs> I shot the whole tour, and that was Richie Houghton's first tour. It was Prodigy's first real big tour in America, and they had to really prove themselves again in this market. And I had to drive home that message because they were a little complainy in the beginning. And you know, I was going to ask you, did you get any pushback from artists and things like would people come to you? Yeah. Like, this is this is an invasion of privacy. How could you do this? But if you're documenting what's going on, it is unique. I mean, it's well, I mean, time. we're all yeah, we're all on a tour bus together. So <laughs> I would shoot I would shoot it and then we'd play it back in the tour bus and analyze what we did and how we can make the next show better. And we, you know, rotated headliners. And so I ran the lights for everybody and emceed the show and we, we produced the, the co-produced the tour. 
Um, and then in the fall of 93, we did our second U.S. tour with Moby, Aphex Twin, Orbital, um, Vapor Space, and DJ Tim from the Utah Saints plus locals. Man, that's and, an amazing roster. I mean, you just yeah, go and, it. it's like know, a who's who. <laughs> and, um, you know, I learned pretty quickly that Aphex Twin was particularly moody and um, I would have to get him upset right before the show. I'd have to come up with creative ways of just <laughs> pissing him off because he would play harder. So, <laughs> yeah, it's, it, that's that's such a, an interesting uh, conversation I'm sure to have. But the, what, what you know with with lighting um, did a lot of groups. You, you have all this footage now. Is it, are you able to go back? I mean, especially now we look at it and you know people right. can get things confused by, like you said, like it wasn't necessarily a, a movement in trying to show off how much lighting, but, but in what way, you know, fluorescence, neon, LED, they all have their kind of place and you're still doing quite a bit of rigging right now. I mean, some amazing work online, you can find you on. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it's just something I love to do, but I mean, back then, uh, the first tour, the first year I toured with Moby, it was me, him at that. And I think four in telebeams and you know you just have to program the shit out of them to make them look right and and um the second tour i think we had eight of them and plus the you know whatever is in the house like a bunch of park hands and stuff but um you know in 94 i delivered rave stock to woodstock and that's when i really pissed off apex twin because he, he, he we wouldn't let him on because he wouldn't sign the the form, it was part of my job as a producer to get all the clearances and rights sorted out and return the paperwork. So, you know, he eventually signed it and went on and he, he played one of the best sets ever. And then he swore off playing live, which he didn't play live for probably 20 years, 15, 20 years. But, um, you know, we, whenever, <laughs> I would do, I, you know, it was really hard because when, you know, when you're in demand or you're good at your job, or there's a lot of offers that come in and it's really hard to make those decisions because so many things were happening at the same time. So I was literally running NASA in New York and then on top of that, you know, doing a tour and missing my own party in New York and having to call in on a big old cell phone brick and you know two dollars a minute and try to find out you know what were my numbers who was who was who was good did the flyers get delivered on time you know there were so many factors but my again uh there's so many stories but the limelight was before i did nasa on my own i was the, one of the technical directors at limelight and you know we went in to renovate the club and they had nothing in there the whole lighting grid was patched wrong it was this 1980s you know patch bay big you know like like uh lily tomlin at the switchboard you know with the tele telephone switchboard but um you know we we put in um a pin spot grid and lit up all of the archways in there and um and for anybody who doesn't know new york city club culture but this is a, a peter gation it's a, it's a historical building in Manhattan. It's, it's literally, uh, uh, you know, it was I a think church. it's a historical yep. church, right? And so, yep. you know, a, a lot of space. And, and, and you can imagine, I mean, it was in the 80s, but it transitioned yeah, from uh, the 80s to 90s, right? <laughs> uh, I think 65 foot peak roof ceiling in there. So, it's incredible. balconies and stuff. So, yeah. So, very so you challenging. Could go, there's a lot of, um, if you're listening and are interested, there's a lot of visuals that um, you can see. Um, 
we've got a lot of it up on scotto.tv and the YouTube site is a link from there as well um, along with a, a lot of flyer archives and stuff like that so it's always um, it's always nice when um, you know you can go check out and, and, and for anyone listening who does like lighting, you know, being being ringside with a lot of these big spaces, did you find it outrageous at the time? Were you trying to figure out how to put your own take on it? I mean, how do you approach a project? Yeah, I mean, you know, I like I said, I, I went into New York and New York's the kind of town that'll eat you up and spit you out or you can become really successful or and or the, the competition really makes you stronger. So, you know, I was grateful that I was able to manage well and settle in and make some friends and, and, and hard, hard work pays off when you're dedicated to your craft. So, um, you know, like I said, I, I learned a lot from others and that includes people that put in these first big disco systems and all this neon. So I got to work at this one place. We turned, we converted the underground nightclub on 14th street in union square to a club called Le Palace de Bute, And it was owned by Maurice Brahms, who owned another famous, before Studio 54, he owned a club called Infinity. And he also had the Red Zone on 54th Street, West 54th, and um, another great club. Um, so the one, the, the, the underground um, had neon around, you know, the main dance floor was down in the basement. So the there were big steel beams that held the first floor together. And you could see from the first floor dance of the club down into the dance floor it was a big long space um and so the, the neon kind of went up the sides of the brick wall and it went around the columns and the the use of neon in nightlife is different than the use of neon for many other purposes and it provides a really nice even light and the colors obviously it's you know use different color neon for different effects um so you know studio 54 was a, a great example that most people would know you know the the coke and the spoon you know whatever but it's part of a bigger light show with strobe lights and you know conceptually you want periods of darkness um to overcome so that the light it's not always so bright so yeah you, know, you, you bring up a, you bring up a good point which is like the all overness we people mention that a lot i think of other clubs too that people used to talk about it some old neon heads in new york city and they mentioned the ice palace on uh, 57th which was yes. kind of a glitzy disco you might have heard of that yep. um mentioned infinity right which was the 70s and 80s right um, and infinity had a lot of great neon and um you know maurice put a lot of money into his club uh yeah in that way yeah and even heard of mars right which was uh inspired by you know blade runner and things of that nature so yeah there's just a lot of unique things that i think appearance wise it makes it a little difficult obviously it's you're dealing with glass and people dancing and that always you know mix that up with a few cocktails and you know you have a hot mess right <laughs> so i think when it's done properly it's, it's yeah. it looks incredible right and even in even today's culture i think we, we clearly kind of steer away from it because it might be you know not as uh, fashionable as some of these more kind of up and coming lighting, but I think everybody knows the difference, right? Like well, visually, the, it's just obvious. What uh, neon does in in nightclub environments that are either smoke filled or foggy with the haze, it creates a. It's like turning on a big bright light, 
and if you do it wrong, um, it, and so it's a it's an important effect, and and a lot of these things were built in with um, diodes, and 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 so you could chase them on and off, blink them on and off quickly, to to the beat of the music. So that that would create motion. You see the same type of thing in Ferris wheels, you know, and um, and and simple animated neon signs, you know, where they're spending some money to make it look good you know, like the Porky's movie or something. <laughs> uh, <laughs> well, even though it's a bad example. But, uh, no, no, it's a, it's a good example. But I now, but now you have, now you have LEDs and everyone's, you know, you can order LED strip lights in your, and put them up in your bedroom and under your kitchen counter. And there are so many applications for this new technology that in a lot of ways is, I don't want to say replaced neon, but it has in a nightclub setting as an LD, it has a similar effect where it can it can create a lot of light and it and sometimes you don't want that, so you have to be careful how much you use it and and the application in the design because the a lot of what we're doing is spending a ton of money to create backdrops and you know rigging points and you know custom stages and all that and all these $10,000 beam effect lights and haze. The last thing you want to do is, is blow out all that. Cause you're, you're really trying to create depth. Um, especially now because of the led walls on the bigger festivals, you have to light it for TV and, and film recording as well as making it look good for the concert goer or the nightclubber. And that, you know, that's a whole nother conversation, how DJ and dance music culture that, traditionally came out of New York or London or whatever now has become more mainstream and you're watching a DJ like you're watching the Rolling Stones and to the point where there's even dead air between DJs now was a changeover DJ CDJs which is ridiculous <laughs> so I mean you know I'm just I'm not trying to say I hate it because I work at the mall and and it's a whole different energy and you just the music changes, the fashion changes, some of the technology changes, but the heart and soul is still there where, you know, you want to create this fantasy, uh, you know, um, disconnected from reality, you know, so that you don't have to really <laughs> be on drugs or trip, but you you can have that escapism and forget about your your world, your problems, maybe meet a new friend and you know or be inspired by the artist performing that you're watching and the the visuals yeah. and and the, the lighting is so important um yeah you're right i mean there is sort of a, a moment in time where i think it does do some of those things right like you don't necessarily want to get messy i think one of the things i mentioned earlier was like you said just being represented in club culture was like um with beach street i remember coming across the movie and it's sort of the roxy scene where yep. uh you know you've got africa Mombata and and i remember columns sort of are, are dressed in neon but there's also you know fluctuating patterns right and so even yep. in 84 you've got this recognition this sort of mixture of counterculture meets new move you know kind of dance movement <laughs> and then you've got you know, hip hop, which was relatively new at the time. Yep. And so it's wild to see, you know, like a wooden dance floor with neon with like, uh, you know, like bulb effects lighting, you know, different like 
you know, yeah. sort of controllers operating at different levels. And it all sort of works. And it kind of reminds me of hip hop, sort of like the and the, and for those who don't know, the Roxy was a nightclub on uh, West uh, 10th, 10th Avenue and 18th Street. And it started, it was basically a roller skating rink that then also became a nightclub. And that that's an important influence in, you know, DJ, dance music, culture, nightclubs, that 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 whole a lot of inner inner cities would have DJ at a skate rink. And that was the only chance, you know, that an inner city youth might be able to go out and enjoy themselves. And it's the first time they'll hear Michael Jackson or somebody on a big, loud system while they're skating with their family. And, you know, it's, it's, those are impactful moments. And there's a lot of neon and light bulbs chasing on, on those. Uh, and, and those are still effective and fun lights to use in the right application. Um, yeah, it's, I, it was called I, I, a studio. When I was when was I was a young uh, L, I did, I, when I was a younger LD lighting, um, I did not have I did not have a really good connection into the Roxy, but a promoter wanted to bring me in to run lights, and the lighting guy was a friend of mine, but he was a competitor, and so I would go in and I would rearrange and focus all the lights differently, change gel colors. And then at the end of the night, I would go back and put everything back the way it was. And even though it was worse and because I didn't want, I didn't want to give him anything for free. And, he, and I put it all back out of respect, honestly, but you know, if, Hey, you like what I do, then you can hire me and I'll do something. But Right. <laughs> um, really, uh, and I would do the same thing in the, in the old days. I would protect my lighting programs and I would save them on a, on a, a card and hold the card with me and, and wipe out the computer so that if I left after sound check, the local lighting guy couldn't steal my programs because they actually did a couple of times. <laughs> I and, relate this to, to benders who sit behind themselves and, and turn their backs to the corner so they can't see how they get things done. But relatively speaking, this was a this is a true thing. You know, even DJs and you DJ too, you'll find that DJs will oftentimes cover the names of records, uh, scratch out, you know, certain BPNs, you know, all these sort of things to kind of keep things interesting. And I think the relatively thing. <laughs> You're right. Yeah. White labels, yeah. et cetera. Yeah. 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 Like change names of, of different tunes. So you don't necessarily know who it is. I mean, what's unique about that era, I think specifically is that, you know, we're all striving for that similar thing. You know, we all want to be recognized. We all want to be appreciated. And I always preach this on the show is that everybody has their own unique era or angle to like what they're going to do. Like we don't always do the same thing. Right. So yeah. um, this idea of sort of lifting or taking is sort of irrelevant because like, you're never going to, you're never going to play records just like the next guy. You just aren't, right? So what are you going to do? The well, next that's, guy what makes, that's what makes this whole subculture last so long is it's not just because we have the technology to make music on a computer now or in your bedroom. It's, it's that there are so many endless possibilities because we are all unique individuals. And I always encourage people to try to follow their dreams and, um, because if you don't, you'll always wonder what if, you know, and you never know, maybe it'll lead to some success or a hit or something that rewards you as an artist that you made someone else happy with your work, whatever medium that is, because I consider myself a multimedia artist. And so that, that and, and, but, but if you don't, then you're always going to wonder what if, what if I had just joined that band and gone on that tour, you know what I mean? So if you have a great career, it'll still be there for you when you come back. And so 
I, I did, you know, before I went to New York, I did my first couple of stadium shows at RFK with Pink Floyd and Monsters of Rock and Rolling Stone and uh, Rolling Stones and then and, and toured, toured with them during the Steel Wheels tour. Um, and then, but then I went to the New York nightclubs and I switched gears and I, you know, I was an in-house LD and then I went out on tour with D-Light or Moby. So I'm always back and forth. You know, for me, that's just, I get bored easily as an artist. So I'll take some time and I'll create a magazine and put it out once a month. And, you know, we did that for a couple of years and, um, until it got too expensive, you know, it's just, um, it's just whatever, you know, that's. Well, that's I think that's what I appreciate most about your 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 kind of trajectory is that um, I'm always preaching this is that, you know, you take risks, but also take calculated risks, do things that you really want to do. And um, I just see that in a lot of the work that you've you know, been a yeah. part of, you know, uh, it's you like, know time is time is our greatest gift and asset. So, you know, that's uh, you got to fill the calendar up and keep busy and um find find those times to be creative and and be productive um a lot of a lot of bedroom producers or djs will get frustrated at home and have 30 or 40 tracks sitting around unfinished just finish them you know yeah. sit there another hour or two and finish it and and also too is just get, preaching, most, get uh, it mostly done so that you can let play it for other people it doesn't do any good just sitting there taking up space um you know um, so I'm, basically, I've been doing this a while, and it's um, next year's the 30th anniversary of NASA. It's um, it's I'm doing a book and a little documentary movie, and hopefully it'll all time itself to work out for next summer. And oh, cool. uh, how like can I we said, uh, how can we support that too? Is there anything that we can like do I said? Uh, yeah, the best thing to do is the the main website is um, www.scotto.tv, like television. And um, there's a merch shop there, so uh, some of our flyers have become popular. Um, I love, I love the uh, the cult, you know, kind of like you said is like the, the the logo, the recognition. I see sort of like the general branding, if you will. Um, you well, know, the uh, '90s, the '90s had a big trend in the last five years coming back. People are remembering that it's the last authentic culture before cell phones and all this technology connected us in a different way. And so, you know, people are kind of reminiscing and it came back in fashion. So one of our NASA flyers was on, you know, Kylie Jenner and Frank Ocean and Future and Tony Hawk and you name it, Skrillex, whatever. They're all wearing this. So it was, it was a really interesting thing to, ha to have a little hot fashion brand for a minute and um, create that whole little NASA trend. And we don't own it. It's not our trademark. So, I mean, we own nocturnal audio and sensory awakening but we don't own nasa so they get all the licensing for that whenever you see it at forever 21 or target but that's fine they know we started the trend and we're privileged to you know have any success it's you know it was not designed to ever make this kind of an impact on so many people um you know and like i said before you know i'm a, I'm a different kind of person and an artist and I tread through different scenes so at the same time I was involved in the rave culture I was you know helping the club kids the you know the gay more fashion conscious club kids and you know there's a lot of history there too with with of course the limelight and um you know its influence on techno and modern club culture and and the empire that Peter Gation had and 
obviously the murder and the drugs and the drama and all the movies, Party Monster and everything else. So that was an interesting chapter, but, um, you know, for me, it's just more about art and creating, um, some, some great content and, um, you know, keeping busy. Uh, it's not easy at 52 climbing 70 feet to rig, rig <laughs> You've achieved, a, you achieved so much. You have so and, much uh, far to go, you know, I think, but even it's, like you know, I said, but it's, if it, now it's, a, it, 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 there's a, there's a young kid I met, um, he's with a AG staging out of Las Vegas and he's the, one of the main designers now for all the lighting and staging for ultra and EDC and stuff, but he's literally 22 and that, he was doing the same thing. He was climbing around, putting lights up, putting these truss structures together because he's designing it and you have to know how much physical work is this for and how many guys and how many days does it take to do this and is this concept worth all of this man labor money hour you know it, or can we do this in a better way this way and so you know we're constantly reinventing you know what we do and how we do it and there's so many different types of companies out there i could go on for hours about it um i love talking about lighting and and production and uh, things like that. So um, it's been and, a, and a almost for every, how, what's going. Uh, anything new coming up that you know we want to know about? You know uh, things like uh, new projects. Uh, I know you're doing a lot of lighting right now. Um, uh, you know, like I said, I just I'm I freelance for that type of production work, and with the pandemic kind of start trying to be over, like we're starting to get work again, which has been great, but. It, there's still a lot, there's still a lot of um, things trying to reopen, not just here but around the, the world, and it's going to be, you know, another year before fully back to normal. I think next summer is going to be great, 2022, with uh, tours. Um, I think the the Prodigy's got a new album and a tour coming, so that's we'll exciting. That. Well, but, I just um, really appreciate what you do. Um, you know, I really think I preach a lot on the show about um, you know just happiness and doing what you like and. Um, just the seductive nature of, of music in general. I think uh, the work that you've done really can't be over understated. It's like, you know, I just appreciate that people can go out and have a good time and you brought a lot of really great people together and still are. And so what makes this such a unique conversation is that, you know, when you're making lighting and things like that, um, you know, these are actual people. And, and I think in a lot of ways, it, it can really make a huge impact, especially when it becomes um just sort of your ethos and so i i just thank you for being on the show and um documenting this part That's my, uh, it's my pleasure yeah uh well thank you so much dj scotto um anybody want to check him out uh find him on instagram dj scotto uh at instagram um we'll put some show links in there as well uh, all just, the all the uh socials are dj scotto twitter instagram facebook all that hey guys hope you enjoyed that show if you haven't done so please leave us a review on your podcast aggregator of choice we have a lot of great neon guests coming up and as always thanks for listening <laughs>